World War II officially ended with Japan's surrender on September 2nd, 1945, but it did not end neatly. At its height, the Japanese Empire was more than 20 million square miles of land and sea. And some soldiers from the Japanese army who were isolated in regions continued to fight on for many years after the surrender of Japan. Some were unaware that the war had ended. Others simply refused to believe. Some hid in the jungles alone. Others fought in groups and continued to make attacks and conduct guerrilla warfare. In fact, one uh, very celebrated incident was a man who continued fighting on into the 60s. And it wasn't until the Japanese government called out his former commanding officer out of retirement, put him in uniform, and flew him to where this young man was and told, not a young man anymore, but told him, I give you an order to cease and defist, cease and desist fighting, did the man finally admit defeat and go home actually uh, in sorrow that he was not able to complete the task that he believed he had been called to by Japan. Just because the war was declared over, just because the final victory was won and the signatures were, were on the treaty, it did not mean that the fighting ended. And as we have talked about salvation these past several weeks, we have been looking at what God has done to save us from our sins. And that while the victory that Christ won on the cross was final, do not make the mistake of believing that the fight with sin is over. In fact, just the opposite is true. Although the war against sin has been won on the cross, the battle still goes on until Christ returns and creates a new heaven and a new earth completely devoid of sin. But until then, Christians will still deal with sin. For although the guilt and the power of sin have been dealt with, the pollution of sin still remains. Though God's people have been forgiven of their sins and have the righteousness of Christ counted as their own, it's been imputed to them so that they may live in right relationship with God, their sin natures have not yet been wiped out. Thus the Bible talks about a process of sanctification, a continual process of actually having sin removed from our lives so that we become more and more holy before God. The Bible actually talks about sanctification in two ways, and it's important to know that because it will affect how you read your Bible. You must always, whenever you see the word sanctify or sanctification, you must look at the context. Because more often than not, actually, the New Testament talks about an event, a one-time event of sanctification, where God pulls us up out of the world and sets us aside and sanctifies us, declares us to be holy in service to Him and no longer to sin. And so just as in the days of the Old Covenant when you would have the temple and they would have some instrument that they would, they would dedicate and this would be used only for temple service alone. It would be sanctified, set apart, never to be used for anything else again. Likewise, God says that in salvation, the moment that we believe, part of the work He does is sanctifying us, removing us from the world. We are set for His good service and works alone. But there is also a process of sanctification that the Bible speaks of. A process whereby we do battle with sin. So what Christ, we have been declared to be in Christ, righteous, and what God promises to do in us on the future, in our resurrection, completely, fully, actually righteous, there is a process that goes on moving in that direction. We are becoming what we have been declared to be in Christ and what we have, promised, we have been promised we will be on the day of Christ's return. And frankly, this, this process is not easy. This process of becoming holy is not an easy one. And that's for a couple of reasons. The first reason is, frankly, we don't talk about sin very much today. We don't like identifying ourselves as having sin in our hearts. We don't like admitting to one another our mistakes, our, our 
lustful passions that cause us to, to do and to act in ways that are unpleasing to God. One of the famous pastors of a large church said, we just don't talk about sin, we just want to encourage people. Well, I'm all about encouragement, but it doesn't make sense to not talk about sin when the Bible characterizes the Christian life as a war against sin. It doesn't make any sense to me. It is true that the Christian has a new heart, a new mind, and a new desires for the things of God, that God has given these things to us. At the same time, the work of God is not finished in renewing us. The mind cannot see as clearly as it will one day, Paul says. We see through a glass darkly. The desires can still be entangled in sin, Paul says in Galatians 2. And the will cannot fully do God's will yet. Again, Paul in Galatians 5. The truth is the flesh remains in the believer unsearchable and deceitful. And so our experience in living the Christian life sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul's experience in Romans 7. I do not understand my own actions, he says, for I do, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Anybody ever feel like that? I do. I do. This then is the life of war for the believer, working to continually put to death more and more indwelling sin in our hearts. And the good news is the Bible promises, the Bible promises if we engage in the fight, if we actually look sin in the face and say, I am done with having you in my life, it's war, the Bible makes the promise we will take ground. If we are willing to engage the enemy, we will make progress. We will grow in the image of Christ. It is not a defeatist attitude with which we go into to this battle. It is one of victory knowing the outcome that is already there. Christ has said, I have predestined you that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. This is the work that God wants to do in our lives. And if we will engage in it, he will make sure that we make progress in it. So this morning, as we have been talking about salvation, we began with seeing why we need salvation, what God has done to bring us to salvation, what God has accomplished for us on the cross in order to save us. And now, last week, we, we, we turned the hinge, as it were, in this process of salvation to see what our experience of salvation is, the first being experiencing God's love through His adoption. But now, frankly, we see this week and next week what the majority of the Christian life in this life we will experience. And it's a war with sin. It's this life of continual sanctification. So this morning what we want to see is more about what it is and specifically how we go about doing it. It's one thing to know we're in the fight. It's another thing to know this is how God calls us to fight. This is how He calls us to put down sin in our lives. And so in order to, to see this, understand this process, we want to look to Romans chapter 8 and we just want to look at two verses. Verses 12 and 13. Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. May God bless the reading of His Word. This morning, as we seek to understand sanctification, we want to see three things that we need to be about the business of doing if we're going to make war on sin. First, we need to pursue sanctification by remembering the gospel. We need to pursue sanctification by remembering the gospel. In verse 12, Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. 
And let me just say right off that knowing and understanding and living this verse is essential to defeating sin in your life. Okay? So verse 12 is important. Okay? If you don't, if you don't understand and employ verse 12 in your fight against sin, you will fail and you'll be miserable. Why? What's so important about verse 12? Verse 12 is the gospel. Verse 12 is the gospel of God's grace through Christ to us. It comes as Paul is building upon the argument he's been making for two and a half chapters now. He began in, verses, or in chapter 3 and went on through chapter 5 showing that Christians are saved by God's grace alone. It's not anything that we do that causes God to save us. And he wanted to show this, that this is the way God has been doing it from the beginning by holding up Father Abraham and saying, look, even Abraham was saved not because he was righteous, but because he believed in God's promises. And in believing in God's promises, God credited it to him righteousness that he might be acceptable to him. So we don't do anything to get salvation. So then in chapter 6, Paul begins anticipating objections in the minds of his readers. Okay? He knows how people are going to think. And he knows that we're going to think, okay, since my salvation doesn't depend on anything that I do or have done or, or will do, what difference does it make how I live my life? Can't I just go on and sin? And of course, Paul's, Paul asks that question in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And his, his answer to that question is a resounding, not on your life. He says, by no means. Different translations say, God forbid. Heavens, no. Forget it. Okay, that's the, the, you know, the Phillips or something, the last one there. But he says, no, it's unthinkable. And his rationale, the next part of the verse is, how can we who die to sin still live in it? In other words, Paul is saying Christians have been united to Christ, and in being united to Christ, sin has lost its power over us. We have been set free from its guilt and its dominating power. We have died to sin. Remember that those apart from Christ, all of humanity yet to turn to Him in faith, they remain enslaved to sin. They remain condemned by God and debtors to the flesh. You say, well, but what's the flesh? Very simply, the flesh is our sinfulness. We've said before that from birth our hearts have been sinful and corrupt, and the result is that we actively commit sin. Even though we struggle with sin after coming to Christ, our sinful nature is wiped out. It has been dethroned as God's people we have been set free from sin. We have new life by His Spirit. So we owe nothing to the flesh. And so Paul says we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. As Christians, we are not in debt to the flesh. You have to understand that before we, before we came to Christ, sin was the reigning principle in our life. It was our king. And it's, it's, not, as, it's, not, as if we were, it's not as if we were kind of uh, cowering in the corner saying, oh, I would so much like to do righteousness, but, but you know... Lord sin keeps me from doing it. No, 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 no. We love sin. We, we enjoyed sin. Many of us were passionate about sin. We went after it hard, believing it to be the source of endless pleasure for us. And now in Christ, the power has been broken. Sin has been kicked off the throne of our hearts and Christ has been seated there. So that now when the flesh raises up and say, don't you want this? We can say, no, I don't. Thank you very much. Before we couldn't do that. Before we were debtors to the flesh, we would always obey sin if we were able to. And we enjoyed it. But now Paul says, all of that is over. All of that is over. Because God has given us this new life, therefore, we ought not to live like we still have the old life. 
We ought not to live as if we're debtors to the flesh, following after its desires and its goals. Imagine working as a slave, and from morning till night, whatever the master desired, you did. Three o'clock in the morning, he gets a stomachache, you're going out for the buttermilk, okay? Doesn't, I mean, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're all warm and toasty in bed. He's ringing the bell, and you're doing whatever he says. He owns you. He rules over you. He is the master. You are the slave, and you obey his will. But then one day, someone comes, and they free you. They pay the price of your redemption, and you go off, and you make your life on your own, and you learn a trade and a skill, and, and uh, you begin to sell your wares in the marketplace. And one day you're out buying food several years after your enslavement, and you see your old master coming down the street. He wasn't a particularly bad master, but as he comes up, he begins to give you orders like you're still his slave. What do you do? Do you, do you obey? You begin to act? No! You say, what are you talking about, dude? That was years ago. I'm my own man now. You're not my master anymore. I'm not listening to what you say. I'm not obeying you. And Paul says the same thing has happened with sin in the life of the Christian. As God's people in Christ, we have set, been set free from the rule of sin. We are under no obligation to serve the flesh. And it's remembering this fact, remembering the gospel, is, that is what gives us our basis for pursuing righteousness. We remember the gospel because it keeps us from getting things in the wrong order. Remember, our standing with God is resolved. If we are truly Christians, then we are Christians. We will forever be Christians. There's nothing we can do to make us not be a Christian or to make us more of a Christian. You understand? We're either in or out, and that's it. So we don't pursue justification to earn, or excuse me, we don't pursue sanctification to earn justification. We don't pursue holiness in order to make God love us. We don't pursue holiness to get more blessings from, from God. He says we've been giving all spiritual blessings, every one of them in Christ. They're ours. How could God love us anymore? We just saw last week adoption. God has loved us as his own sons. How can he love us anymore? We don't pursue holiness to cause God to love us more, to do something more for us. That's, that's not what we do. We have all of that in the gospel. And because we have all of that, because we have God's grace, because we are His children, we already have salvation, then the, that is the launch pad then to pursue holiness with freedom. Not, not in a legalistic way, thinking that we're going we're gonna to earn something from God for it, but no, with great freedom, saying, because you have loved me so much, and because you adopted me as your son, and because as my father you were holy, now I pursue holiness out of joyful, loving obedience to you. And if you don't get that right, You'll go insane. You will absolutely go insane trying to be holy because it's like trying to pay back. And every day, you're going to lay in bed at night and you're going to think, oh, I had a bad day. What sin did I do? Why would God cause me to have a bad day? What have I done? I'm going to scrape out my guts one more time and try and find that sin so that I'll have a better day tomorrow. It doesn't work like that, folks. It doesn't work like that. We have already been loved and received and redeemed and have the fullness of God's grace poured out to us through Christ the day of our redemption. That is the basis for pursuing sanctification. But, but how do we do it? It's one thing to know that. Okay, we've been redeemed and so we pursue, but how do we actually go about pursuing sanctification? Paul says here that in addition to remembering the gospel, we must do two other things. First, we must pursue sanctification by killing sin. This is our second point. Pursue sanctification by killing sin. I hope no one's offended, but that heat is blasting, and I'm about ready to melt. So I'm taking that off. 
And I promise nothing else. Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Here Paul says that sanctification involves putting to death the deeds of the body. Or more succinctly, we could say, sanctification involves killing sin. Now no one in Christian history has written more more faithfully, more biblically, more numerically, in other words, lots of pages on this idea of sanctification than the Puritan John Owen. In fact, he wrote an entire book on verse 13 of our chapter here. It was called The Mortification of Sin in Believers. Now today we use that word mortified to mean something like uh, like embarrassed or, or shamed. But it comes from the Latin word which means death. That's why we put dead people in morgues and in mortuaries. You hear the root that's in there. So Owen's title, The Mortification of Sin, means the killing of sin in the life of the Christian. And so he can summarize his entire book, 174 pages in the little paperback copy that I have. He can summarize it in one little sentence. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And frankly, if you don't get anything else, write that down somewhere, right next to this verse or or in in a note sheet. John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. I say write down because that's exactly what Paul is saying in verse 13. If you kill sin, then you will live. You will have spiritual life. But if you don't kill sin, if you live by sin, then you will die. Not just a physical death. It's not like, well, the consequences of sin will result in my premature death. No, no. You will have spiritual death, separation from God. Now, that might sound like we're earning our salvation. Didn't we just say that we're saved on the gospel? Do this and die. Do this and live. I mean, don't be confused. Paul is not saying your salvation is based on, ultimately, your mortification, your sanctification. Quite the opposite. What he is saying is putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. The daily practice of killing sin in your life is the result of being saved. We are not debtors of the flesh, therefore we put to death the deeds of the body. Remember, lost people aren't worrying about killing sin. Lost people are not worried about putting to death the deeds of the body. If you can remember, if you were you know, high school or older, and you can remember your, your previous life as a lost person, were you at all concerned with pursuing holiness, with getting rid of sin in your life? Not unless the cops were after you. There's no conception there. So for those that would want to be rid of sin, guess what? It is evidence that God is at work in your life. It is evidence that you have the Spirit. It is evidence that, in fact, He has done something profound. A fundamental change has happened so that now you have a desire to be righteous before Him. Engaging in sanctification is evidence that you're a Christian. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, if if you're not worried about sin, if you're living your life and you care nothing, you feel no guilt, no remorse, someone gets caught out, you know, someone catches you, then you feel guilty... But there's no inward sense that says, I've offended a holy God when I sin. Guess what? Dollars of donuts, you're not, in the, you're not in. You're not a believer. You're not a Christian. And you do something about that. Go back to the first point and plead the gospel with God. Say, if Christ died for sinners, then I, then, then I believe in him. I want that in my life. I want that forgiveness. See, killing sin is not just about changing behavior. Lost people can change behavior. Killing sin through Christian sanctification, is about something far more radical. 
Jesus said, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Now we have to understand here, Jesus is using hyperbole to make his point. After all, if, if I stole something with my hand, I cut my hand off, what's the problem? I still got another hand. If I, if I lust with my eye, and so I pop that thing out, guess what? I still got another eye. Worse, I still have the images that my mind created in the lust in the first place. So what do I do? Rip out my brain? You understand? Jesus is not saying start hacking and cutting on your actual flesh. What he is laying down is the principle of saying nothing is too important that is worth your soul. Cut it out of your life and get rid of it. Throw it away for the sake of your spiritual life. When we sin, it's not enough to say, well, I shouldn't have done that. I'll try and do better next time. Jesus says, no. Cut it out. Kill it. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. We are to put to death the deeds of the body, the sin that we commit. But where do these deeds come from? See, this is why it's not enough just to get rid of the, the hands, the feet that take us places we shouldn't go. The ears that hear things and then the mouth that, that in turn speaks them in gossip. It's not enough just to get rid of these things because Jesus says in Matthew 15, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things that defile a man. Jesus says there is a condition of the heart that gives rise to the deeds of the body. So it's not, it's not a body issue. It's nothing to do with your physical body. It's a heart issue. If you want to stop the sinful deeds done with the body, then you go to the source. You go to the heart. The work of killing sin is fundamentally a heart issue issue. And if we are going to put to death the deeds of the body, if we're going to kill sin in our lives, we must cut off the lifeline between our sinful hearts and our sinful actions. How many of you have email? Anybody got an email? Okay. So those of you that don't, I'll, I'll, I'll explain. Yeah, even Richard back there. First time in a long time. <laughs> One of the things I hate doing, I hate going in the spam folder. Okay, you guys know what the spam folder is? Spam folder, those who don't have email. Just like you get junk mail at home, you get junk mail on email. Okay, but it's nice because unlike the U.S. Postal Service, your email provider will set up a spam folder automatically. And so as it comes in, it kind of reads over and kind of sees where it's coming from and who it's addressed to and what the contents are. And it makes a really good guess as to whether or not you actually want to see that email or not. And if you don't, it sends it to the spam folder. But every once in a while, the computer's not so smart. It's just a computer after all, right? It's only as smart as the programmers. And it misses some things. Sometimes you get junk mail, you get spam email in your inbox. But the worst part is when you get real email that accidentally gets sent to your spam box. And then you got a problem, particularly if it's an important one. You, know, you, you paid a bill and the receipt's in there and you got to go after it. Okay? What does that mean doing? That means clicking on that spam folder and, and reading over the, the subject lines of all those emails. And guess what you see? A cesspool. I mean, it's a cesspool of immorality. Every, every debauchery and sin you can imagine is being peddled there with no, with no subtlety whatsoever. I mean, it's just right there in your face all the time. And it's, it's, a, you know, it's, it's a bother. I usually tell people, look, give me your email address. I'll click it into my book, and then you resend the email. Because I don't want to have to go in there. I don't want to have to be exposed to that. But you know what John Owen says in his book on the mortification of sin? He says this. Let not that Christian think that he makes any progress in true holiness who is not prepared to walk over the bellies of his own lusts. Did you get that? Let me read it again. 
Let not the Christian think that he makes any progress in true holiness who is not prepared to walk over the bellies of his own lusts. In other words, if you're going to make real progress in holiness, if you're going to put to death the deeds of the body by focusing on the issues of the heart, then you're going to have to go into the cesspool of your own heart. You're going to have to be honest with yourself and identify the sins that are there and not laugh them off. That's our first defense mechanism. You know, so someone begins to get close to identifying sin in our life and we kind of laugh it off and we, and we kind of play it off and make a joke about it. We can't do that if we're going to pursue holiness. We have to be honest about it and say, this is something that is so terrible, so offensive in the eyes of God that it deserved the death of His Son on the cross. That's sin. And that's what's in our hearts. And if we're going to make any progress in sanctification, then we need to do this unpleasant work. I say it's unpleasant because nobody likes it. Right? I mean, some of us, frankly, like those sins. It's easy to get mad and be bitter at someone who's done something wrong to us, isn't it? When no one's around, it's easy to cheat on things. It makes life easier for us. And on and on and on, we could could name them all. But God says, no. No. Get rid of the sin that's in your life. Put it to death that you may grow in holiness. In 1993, Donald Wyman was clearing away timber in a remote Pennsylvania forest. And it was late in the day, and as he was working a tree fell in a way that was unexpected to him and he ducked out of the way so that he didn't get crushed by it but it fell on his leg and he was pinned he couldn't move the tree and he couldn't he couldn't get out of it and for an hour a solid hour he is yelling out of the forest for help begging anybody could come and help him no one comes no one's there no one hurt him and Wyman is laying there and he's he he's looking at his leg and he's realizing the situation that he's in and so he gets his, his free leg up and he undoes his bootstrap, he unlaces it, and he ties a tourniquet around his pinned leg as, as tight as he possibly can. And then he reaches down and he pulls out his little pocket knife that he has with him and he begins cutting. Down to the flesh, down to the muscle, down to the tendon, hacking the bone away so that he can free his leg and he can get out of there. That's exactly what he did. He crawls back to his truck, drives himself to the hospital and lives. I say, how in the world can a person do that? I mean, just thinking about that. I saw some of you are going, you know. I mean, you just don't want to think about that. It's disgusting. You know, I mean, it's, it's one of the worst things you possibly think of. He did it because it saved his life. It saved his life. He understood about his physical life, what Paul is teaching, what Jesus taught about our spiritual life. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There is a choice of life and death before you. You can live according to the flesh and suffer spiritual death, or you can kill the deeds of the flesh, giving evidence of your salvation, and you will experience spiritual life. And Paul says, as God's people, saved by the blood of Christ, called to be holy as our Heavenly Father is holy, we must seek the death of sin in our lives. That's tough work. It is hard work. But the good news is God's not left us to do it on our own. The last thing that we see from Paul's letter here in Romans chapter 8 is that we are to pursue sanctification by the power of God's Spirit. We are to pursue sanctification by the power of God's Spirit. Paul says in verse 13, it is by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. That means it's not me versus the flesh. It's the Spirit of God versus the flesh. If I'm going to be at all successful in killing sin, that's a lesson that I have to learn. 
I don't, I don't go at it with, with my own strength. I go in it with the strength and the power of God's Spirit. In fact, in Galatians 5, Paul makes this promise. It's, it's not a suggestion. It's not, a, it's not kind of a, well, you know, try this. No, it's a promise. I say to you, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Try and kill sin in your own life, not going to work. Kill sin by walking by the Spirit, you will succeed. That's, that's the promise that is given here. In fact, it's a double negative in the Greek to emphasize, if you walk by the Spirit, there is absolute certainty you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. It will be nailed. It will be coffined up and thrown away, dead to you, as it's already been declared to be in Christ. The question that needs to be answered then is, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? What does it mean to live by the Spirit in such a way that His power is at work to sever the root of sin in our hearts? Well, Paul gives us the answer just a few verses up in verses 5 through 6 of the same chapter. He says this, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So the promise of Galatians 4, the promise of verse 13 here, is that if we put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, we will have life. And here he says that specifically we do this, we live by the Spirit, we walk by the Spirit, by setting the mind on the things of the Spirit. Now why did Paul say that? Why did he say, set your heart on the things of the Spirit? Set your affections on the things of the Spirit. Set your soul on the things of the Spirit. Why does he say the mind? Well, because Paul understands the role that the mind plays in our lives. And when we take the totality of the Scriptures, we see that each of the faculties of our soul has certain duties before God. There's a certain process, a certain way that God has wired humanity. And it starts with the mind. The mind is the sentinel of the soul, commanding to watch, commanded rather, to watch carefully over our souls by questioning, assessing, and by making judgments. Is this good? Is this bad? Is this what God wants? Is this according to His will? Is it sin? And if the mind determines an action is right, the affections then fall in line and desire, long for, and cling to what the mind has said is good. Finally, the will puts the soul into action, carrying out what the mind has said was good and the affections hungered for. When the job is done right, then, we obey God from the heart. So imagine I have been out in the wilderness for, for, for days and, and uh, you know, it's had a little bit of water and nothing much to eat. And I'm dragging myself out and I see an apple orchard right at the edge. And I run to it and I see the apples and they're ripe and they look delicious. What's the mind going to say? Apple is good. You do not have food. You need food to live. Take apple. It's good. And so, so it says, eat the apple. It's good for you. That's the, that's the judgment the mind makes. What's going to happen suddenly? The, the, the affections are going to be activated. I'm suddenly going to long for that apple. It's good for me. I want it. I need it. It's going to give me nourishment. It's going to, it's going to taste good. And I don't just stand there salivating. I reach out and I grab the apple and I start devouring the thing, right? Mind, affections, and will all engaged for a good thing. But now, think of the Garden of Eden. What happened? Satan comes in and he tempts and he says, God... God said that the apple was bad. God said the fruit was bad. But don't believe him. It's actually good for you. It's good for you. And through deceit, 
Satan causes Adam and Eve to believe what God has said is not true, that the apple is good when in fact it's death. And the Bible very specifically says that Eve saw that it was a delight to the eyes, that it was good for food, and then she took and she ate. So you can see now why sin is called deceptive, why Paul will write about the deceit of sin. If your mind is persuaded to believe a sin is good for your soul, and then your affections work up an appetite for it, your will gives its consent, the dominoes fall, and instead of the fruit of the Spirit bearing forth in your life, the putrid fruit of the flesh is evident there. Imagine trying to take a fortress in battle. What do you do? Do you line up at the front and say, we're here, we've come to conquer this fortress? No, you don't do that. Because the commander of the army, the king, peeks his head over and says, okay, yeah, sure, try. And suddenly all the archers in the castle are there and they're raining down things on you, know, throwing you know, flaming boulders and all kinds of stuff and you have to yell, run away, run away, and you go off into the forest, right? You lose. But if you're clever about it, and the night watchman, the sentinel, is up on, in the tower and he's looking around and you get your most skilled archer and he pulls back and he lines up and when his head is turned, he lets the arrow fly. And so as the sentinel turns around, boom, it gets it through the heart and he goes down. What are you going to do? Hey, you sneak in, you take over, right? I mean, there's no one there manning the guard post. There's no one to ring the bell and say, you know, the enemy's here, man your stations, go to the battlements. No, you're just in and out, you've, you've taken over. And likewise, Paul is saying, sin uses deceit to take out the watchman of the soul, your mind. Paul says, therefore, we must fight against this by actively setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. Romans 12 says, if we allow the Spirit of God to transform our minds to renew it according to what God says is right and good and wrong and beautiful and ugly, then we will be able to put down the desires of the flesh in our hearts. So how do we set our, our minds on the things of the Spirit? It's very simple. The Word of God. The Word of God. Did not Peter say that no prophet or uttered anything out of his own mind, but only what was given to him by the Spirit of God? The Spirit is the one who moved among God's people and caused them to pin the Scriptures in such a way. It's exactly what God wanted them to say. It's His Scriptures in that sense. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, the great chapter on spiritual warfare, that we are to attack Satan, we are to attack sin, we are to attack the world with what? One offensive weapon. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is God's favorite weapon to wield in the fight against sin. Everything you do is tied to this. Everything. And so you read God's Word and you believe its promises. It's not just, an ab, it's not just reading half asleep is not going to keep you from sin. Reading with faith is what's going to keep you from sin. You read and then you believe what you've read. You believe what God has told you. You believe that what God says He is and what He has for you then is better than the temptation. So, you, you know, you, you've, you've got this. Again, we'll go back to the, the wilderness analogy. I've not had any water now, two days. And I see this thing sitting here. And, and, I, and I'm tempted. Look, look at that. It, it's dripping with sweat. It's so cold. It's nice. It's, it's wet. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be great for you. Yeah, but it's got poison written on it. Doesn't matter. Just ignore that. It's going to be great tasting down. It's going to parch your thirst. No, I don't think so. Why not? Because God says don't drink the poison. And even if I don't make it home and I die because I didn't 
do what God said not to do, guess what? He's got something better for me. It's called heaven. So frankly, it doesn't matter how bad the temptation gets. God has said he is going to be with us forever. He is going to be there and provide for us. He is going to have his grace in our life. He loves us more than anything else in the world save his son. What does temptation have to offer me that God does not have something better for? What does it look like practically? Let me give you an illustration. A missionary family several years ago was forced out of Tanzania by the government. They lived there for seven years and they were told, you have 30 days to leave. Now, in the midst of that situation, there was a great opportunity, great temptation for them to sin. You can imagine they could have been angry, angry at the government, angry at God. They could have been overwhelmed with a sense of despair. They could have been filled with the, with the sin of self-pity and fear. Or they could have allowed their situation to make them impatient or irritable. How do you put to death those sins of the body that might come from your heart in that situation? Well, the answer comes in an email from one of the wives. Here's what she says. We are clinging to these truths. God is good. He is in control. And He loves us more than we can comprehend and has, his, and has plans to give us hope and future plans to prosper us. Our spirits are understandably low. We are emotionally and physically exhausted. But because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Lamentations 3, 22-23. What are they doing? What are they doing? They are killing sin by the power of the Spirit. They are hearing God's promises in His Word and they are believing them. And they are trusting that the promises of God, God Himself, is better than any emotional, cathartic experience they're going to have through those sinful emotions and reactions. And so, by God's truth and the power of His Spirit, they are being sanctified and sustained in their walk as Christians. That's what it means to set our minds on the things of the Spirit and to allow Him to the power in our lives put to death sin. I've been told that a bone marrow transplant can make you feel that you were dead. When cancer spreads into the bone marrow, a doctor has to all but kill the patient in order for him to survive. He destroys the marrow first with radiation. Then he replaces it with donor marrow, healthy marrow, to, to get you going again. And if the patient survives, though he has a long road ahead of him, he nevertheless is healed from the cancer. When you read the Bible, sometimes God, seeing God in all of His glory, can make you wish you were dead. When Isaiah saw Him high and lifted up, he, what did he say? Woe is me, for I am undone. When Job was blasted by God's glory from the storm, what did, he, what did he say? I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When Habakkuk says, saw a vision of God's power, he said, I hear, my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. So Chris Lungard explains it this way. God's terrible majesty is radiation. It x-rays a soul and shows that it's gorged with sin. The soul sees what God is like and His glory sees what it is like in its sickness and buries its face in the dirt. Then the healing starts. God's radiating majesty kills the rotten marrow of sin and replaces it with humility. A heart humbled by God's terrible majesty can begin its recovery and grow strong. If we want to put sin to death in our hearts, we have to swallow the strongest doses of God's terrible majesty that we can stand. The only way to fight sin in our hearts is to be exposed to the knowledge of sin there. 
And the way we do that is to continually look to God in the Bible. You mark up those passages that more than anything else reveal God in all of His glory and you, you soak your life in those things. Because the more you are exposed to God's holiness, the more your sinfulness is going to be evident. And the more your sinfulness bubbles up and rises to the surface, the more you're, able, the more you're going to be, be able to destroy it through the power of the Spirit as He applies the Word to our hearts. Frankly, this is not necessarily good-tasting medicine. But like I tell my kids, if it tastes bad going down, it probably means it's going to work better than anything else. And loved ones, let me just say, if you are here this morning and you desire holiness in your life, if because you are God's child, you feel that desire to get rid of sin and to be holy welling up, with, holy welling up within you, then you need to be about the business of mortifying the flesh. Begin by remembering the gospel, understanding that no matter how sinful you are, God has already forgiven you and will keep forgiving you. Understand that we need to identify the sin that is in our life and be going to the root of the problem in our hearts, not just changing habits. And finally, we understand that only God's Spirit can bring about that transformation of our lives. And no matter how terrible the medicine tastes, no matter how bad it makes us feel at the beginning, it will ultimately be sweetness to our souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for what you have done for us in Christ. We thank you for the righteous standing we have in him and father we pray that by your spirits and your word you would be at work in our lives causing us to be transformed in a greater likeness of him father help us to reflect the glory of christ as we deal honestly with sin by the strength you provide we pray all this in jesus name amen let's stand and as we sing in response